right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Association NBA Podcast. Today's May 7th. We are halfway through the conference semifinals. Why don't we just call it the quarterfinals? I don't know. I guess they like sounding official. Either way, I am Sam Ruthier. I was spared by Thanos and joining me. I don't want th- don't don't read into that anybody who hasn't seen Infinity War yet. Uh, joining me as he always does, my co-host across the coast, across the country, not the coast. He's landlocked. Tommy Wood. Tommy, good good morning to you. Good morning to you, man. Do you, do you know who has not been spared by Thanos? I'm gonna guess it's somebody north of the border. Yes, it is. It is, it is the Toronto Raptors. <laughs> Indeed, it <laughs> I, is. I think, I think Canada might have been exempt from that. Fifty uh, percent of the population. I think they. He just took them all. He he just ripped their hearts out. Indeed, and uh, you're speaking, of course, not of the wielder of the Infinity Gauntlet, but the closest thing we have to Thanos on Earth, which would be. LeBron Raymond James, who I am ready to officially declare the greatest player in the history of the National Basketball Association, because he, the man just has no equal. Um, the Cavs are up three nothing on the Raptors. The Raptors, who of course had the best conference in the Eastern or the best record in the Eastern Conference this year, were the number one seed, had home court advantage, had a roster that seemed like it was finally ready to stand up to the task of LeBron, who had just barely got by Indiana in a seven-game series, but uh, I don't know. Tell me what's going on here. The Cavs are up 3 nothing, and Toronto is, is, is screwed. Well, what's going on here is I'm never going to trust anything again. Uh, I, just, I was just thinking back when we, when we started this to a couple months ago when Cleveland beat Toronto in that really close game in the regular season or Kevin Love hit a three late to ice it. And afterwards, we were talking about it, and you asked me if that had like changed how you felt about this matchup in the playoffs, and I said no, <laughs> and because foolishly I believed. And you were like, I don't know, man. It, like this, If the Cavs play like this, they're pretty unbeatable. And uh, you were right. Uh, there's just no way that Raptors can guard the Cavs when they're on. And... I thought that Kevin Love would have to have a way better series than he has had uh, for Cleveland to win, and he had that one great. He had that great game too, but he has been pretty subpar on on the whole. He's only four of eight from or four of thirteen from downtown, um, only shooting forty four percent. But man, like they have just they have been unstoppable, and it all comes back to LeBron James, and he's he's just been. At a level that I don't know, I thought he was capable of. Um, one thing I was curious to ask you about is: Do you like? Is this apex LeBron? Like, what is like? What is LeBron's apex to you? Is it like now? Is it 2016? Is it back in 2013, 2014 with the Heat? It's an excellent question. Um, it's actually something I don't know if you you I mean. There's obviously so much content lately, but. Simmons had a uh, windhorse on his podcast content. last week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> content. And yeah. asked Brian Windhorse that exact question and pretty much used those examples. Um, they both kind of landed on, on LeBron during that 27-game win streak when he was shooting 60% to, to for a lot of the year, but also scoring like 30 points in 10 straight games or something. Um, 
I mean, it depends how you like. He's had so many different different eras. You know, there's been like LeBron at the tail end of the the Iverson ISO era when he just dragged those Cavs to the finals and had that dominant performance over Detroit. Then there's LeBron becoming the ultimate efficient passer with those Heat teams, and then LeBron playing dueling banjos with Kyrie. Um, and now we've got LeBron once again, alpha dog, but still getting his teammates involved pass. You know, I mean, he, in his, his most dominant game in this series, he had 43 points, eight rebounds and 14 assists. So, uh, I'll take LeBron right now. Um, what he's doing at this age is unheard of with this many minutes and miles on his body, um, to still just be able to so thoroughly dominate a game, no matter who's on the other end of the floor, no matter what they throw at him, he will still, uh, you know, I mean, what they've always, what we've always said about LeBron is make the right play. But more than that, I think he just finds finds a way to get the ball in the basket, whether it's making a bunch of ridiculous fadeaways, making a crazy one-legged off-balance floater after going coast-to-coast with eight seconds left, or finding wide-open guys and making Kevin Love and Kyle Korver look like Hall of Famers. Um, I think it's right now. What he's doing is just, it, it has no equal. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, that's hard to argue with, especially because his athleticism has just not declined like a normal basketball player's would at the age he's at. And when you combine that just with how smart he is, and I think I, I think he's only like getting smarter about basketball. I think he's only ever learning more. As as weird as that sounds, it, it would you would think that LeBron knows everything there is to know about playing a game of basketball. But I think his mind is constantly taking in new information about his teammates, about his opponents, uh, about their tendencies and what they like to do. Um, and I think when you combine that with the fact that his athleticism is still there, um, you know, that his jump shooting improved this year as well. Yeah, it's just he, he's getting better, as, as weird as that sounds. I mean, he is just otherworldly efficient and – his three ball hasn't been falling at all in this in these playoffs, or at least in this series either. But it hasn't mattered, you know. I mean, that you usually that's at least one area where you can kind of, you know, at least get a little bit of resistance against LeBron. Um, you know, famously the the Spurs and, and the Mavs did it back back in those days, but it, that that doesn't work anymore. You know, now you kind of have to guard him, and even when it's not falling, it just doesn't it just doesn't matter. There's so many ways he can kill you. Yep, it's uh, that's exactly right. He, I mean, he's only three for fifteen on three pointers in this series, and still three dominant games, uh, three games to zero lead. Uh, it's it's crazy. It's awesome to be a fan of basketball right now, watching this guy become the greatest player of all time. Um, yeah, and the comparison you have to make is, is Tom Brady, similarly lasting long enough to become the greatest quarterback of all time, um, and just finding ways to maintain that athletic peak longer than anybody has before them. Uh, and both of them kind of have done it, at least in part with like new age, non-conventional workouts that nobody else had really done to that degree before. I mean, Brady, of course, we've got the crazy Alex Guerrero stuff we won't get into. LeBron, he's got all these workouts he posts on Instagram of himself on a balance ball, like crazily balancing and holding weights and doing all kinds of shit. And I guess it's working. Yeah. I guess I gotta go Tom, buy a Tom workout Brady heard ball. That and he was shoving all his needles like under the into the closet real quick. He's okay, sleeping yeah. those under the rug. Sure. Uh, Fine. 
<laughs> to me, one of the craziest things about what LeBron's done in this series, 34 assists, 6 turnovers. And the, the Cavs as a whole have turned it over 18 times in 3 games. Which, that has to be one of the lowest team turnover counts for any 4-game series. I mean, obviously they'll have some turnovers in, in Game 4, but I mean, that, that, that's absurd. They had, I think, uh, I'm pulling up the box right now, I think three turnovers as a team in in Game 2. Um, they have just been, yeah, Game 2, three turnovers. It's ridiculous. To me, go on. Their role players have just been stepping up, too. I mean, you know... JR struggled in the first round. Uh, you know, Jeff Green decided that this was the time to play the best basketball of his career. He's shooting, he's 7 of 10 on threes. <laughs> uh, uh, Green, Corver, and uh, uh, JR Smith combined are 22 of 40 on three point attempts. It's like you just can't beat them when, when those guys are shooting like that. I mean, that the turnovers first definitely shows um, Cleveland just playing at, at this team's apex this year right now. Uh, it also shows to me that, that that with Toronto, as much as you want to try and point to data or past performance this season or players progressing, uh, to me it just shows that psychologically they're they're spent um, because that that shows that you're not playing an attack style of defense. It, it, it shows me that you're afraid of what poster LeBron's going to put you on. LeBron putting up 50 against you. LeBron finding the wide open guy for three. So instead, they're zagging off, apparently. They're not trying to play really gritty, intense defense. They're just letting Cleveland come to them and then reacting, as opposed to forcing the terms that Cleveland has to play by, which, to a certain degree, you have to do with the Cavs, no matter who you are, because LeBron gets to the space he wants to and gets the shot he wants to, to a certain degree. But um, I think it would have done Toronto a lot of good to try and dictate those terms a little more, because they have some some defenders who can do that with I mean, Ibaka's not who he used to be, but Ananobi and DeRozan and Lowry can certainly defend their asses off, and with Cleveland, the backcourt is not a strength of theirs, so there would have there there should have been a way for them to force more turnovers, give Cleveland worse looks, but it didn't happen, and when it did happen, it was LeBron making ridiculous fadeaway shots, so I guess they did it the wrong way, I and I don't know what the right way was, and I'm not sure there was, but um, it's still just crazy to me, like, Indiana takes Cleveland to seven, and then this Toronto team that there's so many different ways that they're superior can't do it, and I I just can't figure out why besides psychologically. Um, watching, you know, I didn't really catch any of these games in full. I caught pieces. I saw the fourth quarter of, of game three, and I saw parts of one and two, but Game one, Toronto was ready to take the fight. They, they, you know, they were dunking. Valanciunas was blocking everybody. They were, they had a lot of swagger. And then right at the end, the Cavs pull it out. And then game two, they just looked like the, you know, the dog in the shelter. They just looked scared. Um, and they have since. And it shows yeah. in the results. I mean, these have not been crazy blowout games. They've all been close. But, uh... Toronto just looks like there's no more fight in them, and and they look shell shocked. Like, oh my god, he's doing it again. Especially when you see 
the after LeBron hits that shot in Game Three, the looks on their faces, especially I saw one of Kyle Lowry who looked like he just saw a ghost. Like they just can't believe it. And, and I mean, it's it's crazy that his as you said, LeBronto. Like it, it just continues. Um, what uh, what do we make of this moving forward? Is this really just Cleveland owning Toronto, or does this mean they're about to walk into Boston and lay some similar smackdown? I don't know, man. That's that's intriguing to think about because like, Toronto was a better team in Boston this season yeah. too. So if theoretically, if Cleveland is able to just you know have their way with them, um, you know Boston should be easy pickings. I don't I don't think they will be though. Um, I do want to talk some about just like where where this all went wrong yeah. for the Raptors, um, and I could. At the when at the end of regulation in game one, like when you saw Valanciunas like collapse to the floor after he missed all those tiffins. Oh, like, that at, was brutal. When I saw that, I was like, they're gonna lose this series. <laughs> like, because that that was it. I, you know, when when they came out with all that swag in game one, they had that big lead. Um, I, I think they needed to hold, they needed to win that game in a blowout. You know, it, it, even if that game had, even if they had won, even if one of those buzzer beaters had gone. They still, I think they still would have been in trouble, you know that because if they had won that game in a blowout, then maybe that forces Tyloo to adjust and and make a move that he ne- doesn't necessarily want to make. Um, but it didn't happen. But I want to talk about Tyloo a little bit though because I think he's had a really good series and I think he's outcoached the shit of, out of Dwayne Casey in this series. Um, and you know, you're talking about how it seemed like Toronto had all these options. Uh, with which to, you know, kind of dictate the matchups and all these bodies to throw out LeBron. But I think I think you're right. I think theoretically they did have that, but but Casey has not really used the advantage of, of the depth that he has. Um, and I think Ty Lue has really been able to dictate the matchups all series long, which when you look at these teams' comparative depth, he should not be able to do. But because I, I think Ananobi has done a really, really good job defending LeBron, just straight up. He's done as well as, as anybody could. Um, but Casey at times has – he's only been playing at an OB like 27 minutes a game, which I don't think is enough. He's been throwing Siakam and CJ Miles out there who have just gotten roasted. Um, and when Miles was out there in game two, he, he was guarding Kevin Love for most of his 30-point uh, outburst. So I, I think Casey's kind of screwed up the matchups that way. And then even when – you know, they've got a good matchup like Edinobi on LeBron. They've still been inconsistent in uh, when they double or where they help from. And they're not with, – with your LeBron, it has to be all all or nothing. You have to double as soon as he catches the ball or you have to play him straight up. And they have either been slow on doubling or been uh, kind of hesitant about that to where it's just totally ineffective and he's just been able to completely pick them apart. And – the one, the one lineup I really wanted Casey to play, um, the one that I thought could give him a good advantage would be Ibaka at the five with Siakam at the four and, and Nobi at three and then DeRozan and Lowry. And I don't think they've played that lineup a, a minute in this series. Um, you know, as great, of, as great a game one as Valanchunas had, you know, it might have been time to, you know, game two might have been time to, to bench him and bring him off the, bring him off as a sixth man and, Started Baca because um, I thought that was a really smart move that Ty Lue made 
well, not really move, uh, a smart decision he made to not bench Kevin Love after his awful game one to keep him in the starting lineup because people were clamoring to start Tristan Thompson after game one. Um, but Ty Lue stuck with his guns, and it's worked out really well for him because I think he trusted that uh, Kevin Love will give Valanciunas a lot of defensive problems, and he's been right. I think that what's happened here in, in an oversimplification is Ty Lue's just been able to accomplish more by, by thinking less. Uh, that's not a slight on Ty Lue. I think that he just saw, you know what, at the end of the day, what we are doing is working, and we're not going to try and do something crazy here just because these games are close or because occasionally Toronto has an advantage. Um Toronto, as we were hoping would be the case, they haven't shortened the bench all that much. They've still been using the guys who got big minutes during the season. As you mentioned, some of that was to their detriment. CJ Miles has been a big minus on the defensive end, although he's had some moments offensively, but really not too much to write home about. Um, yeah, Pirtle's been really bad, too. Yeah, um, at, at some young players just aren't ready for the moment, or you know, when LeBron's going supernova against you, that certainly takes some guys uh, out of their head. Uh Cleveland's really just taken what's been given to them. I mean, Corver hitting 10 of 20 three-pointers, that's just a matter of when there's an open three-pointer for him, he takes it, and, and that's that. And that's happening no matter what lineup they have, no matter what lineup they're playing against with Toronto. I mean, game one, Jordan Clarkson had some moments where he looked like a borderline all-star, and that's just playing the mismatch or just seeing the hole and being ready to attack. I mean, Valanciunas, I'm glad that you brought him up because... As much as he has done some great stuff, had some great blocks, done some excellent uh, you know, post work on offense when he gets the ball in the right moment, um, every time the Cavs had a mismatch, they were just like, all right, we're just going to take it. Uh, Jeff Green, uh, Jordan Clarkson both had some moments where they got on Valanciunas, and they were like, all right, cool, thank you. Uh, yeah. so, so that's a moment where I think you're right. Dwayne, Qua- Dwayne Casey needed to see as much as Valanciunas is maybe doing some good uh, that good in that five-minute stretch that maybe he does is not does not outweigh how that's going to come in the final box score because with Toronto's depth, they really need to be dominating the minutes that their better bench plays against Cleveland's bench, but they haven't, and they've let Cle- Cleveland find a groove both in Toronto and now in Cleveland where they're most likely going to close it out in game four. This doesn't feel like a gentleman's sleeve to me. Um, even game two, I mean, Tristan Thompson had two points and two rebounds in 15 minutes, so... I think you're exactly right that Ty Lue sticking with his guns uh, kept Kevin Love in there, let Kevin Love explode for 31-11. and 11. And then another game, I don't know if it was one or three, I can't remember, he had 15 rebounds. And so Love's, yeah. been, Love's been solid, not spectacular, but they didn't need spectacular. It's 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 a 3-0 series. They, they've taken what players have given them, and they've been just fine. Yeah, and like Ty Lue gets a lot of shit for, for not being this brilliant X's and O's guy, which... It's partly justified, but I think he's a really, I think he's a really good strategist. Just in terms of the things we, we've been talking about, you know, lineups and, and matchups, and knowing you know what guys to play when, and he knows. I think he's really good at expo- at you know kind of honing in on his opponent's weakness, especially in a playoff series, and exploiting it. You know, they in uh, the 2015 finals when the Cavs, all the Cavs players got hurt, and they still took two games from the Warriors behind LeBron being awesome and the supersized front court of Thompson and Mozgov. And Del idea to go that to go super big. You know, that you know, I, he realized that that was that was kind of 
the only way they had a chance and and it worked um at least for two games so i think he's been i think he's been doing really really well uh and man it's just it 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 sucks for toronto but you know this uh, cleveland has been their kryptonite and they're just going to be the latest in a long line of good to very good teams that lebron has vanquished so uh we'll wrap it up with this if you're Masai, do you do you roll it back again? If you're the 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 best GM in the NBA, according to Tommy Wood, do you just bring back the same team? It was the best team in the Eastern Conference. That's a really tough decision because I I don't think this current iteration of Toronto is going to get better. I think this is as good as it gets because Lowry and DeRozan are both, especially Lowry, is to the point where. They should start to decline because of age. DeRozan might have a couple more prime seasons in him, um, but I don't think they're getting any better. Ibaka is definitely starting to decline. Uh, really smart move by Masai to only sign him to a three-year contract. Um, and then I think it's going to be a couple of years before you know the kind of their younger guys like Van Vliet and Ananobi are good enough to really be a focal point. Um, I would absolutely look into blowing it up. I think if you can get it, obviously if you can trade either one of Larry or DeRozan for some amazing futures, it's future asset, you do it. Um, I would maybe try something that would get you back some complimentary guys and a future first, maybe not like a lottery pick, but like a mid to late round first because uh, Masai has been so good at uh, taking advantage of those draft visit, draft picks. Um, yeah, and then, you know, they're they're really going to have cap space again and, like, cap flexibility again in, like, 2020. So I think they they kind of need to start playing for for then and, and looking to the future because um, this clearly – if it didn't happen this year, it's not going to happen for Toronto. What do you what do you think about Twa- Casey? Do you think he comes back? Yeah, I do. Um... I do, too. I hope so. I hope he does. I mean, he he's shown a willingness to to not be stubborn when they realize things don't work for them. He's willing to try something new. We've spent a lot of time talking about how this offense doesn't look like their old offense. We thought that was going to mean things were going to end differently for them in the playoffs. Uh, it didn't, but with that said, I mean, I don't see why you don't bring it back. And um, I, I, I totally agree. They do great with mid-to-late first-round picks, and I think it would be prudent for them to try and grab some in some way. I also think that the guys they have on the roster looking past the older Ibaka and Lowry um, are guys worth keeping around and seeing what happens. Uh, Jakob Pertl certainly could do some more maturing. Uh, Fred Van Vliet has really exceeded expectations of him coming out of college. Um, so there's, there's some, some interest there. And Ananobi seems like a guy who you could potentially build around. Not necessarily a superstar type, but as a solid building block that you know what he can do and you can see where potentially he could grow into an important piece for your franchise. So I'd keep them all. Everybody, I don't even know what the contract situations look like, if they're going to be needing to re-sign anybody in this offseason. But outside of some bottom-of-the-roster churn, I see no reason to press any kind of panic button this year. 
less so than in years past. There have been a couple of past seasons when Toronto got kicked out by LeBron, and I was like, all right, blow it up. But this year doesn't feel like the year to do that. Yeah, I'm pulling up their cap sheet right now. Yeah, cool. no, they don't have anybody coming off their – the only person coming off their books – uh, well – yeah, so the only, only unrestricted free agent they're going to have is Bebe Noguera, who they're not going to care about re-signing. Um, but Fred Van Vliet is going to be an unrestricted uh, free agent, so he could get a pretty... I could see some team giving him an expensive offer sheet just yeah. to, you know, A, try to fuck with Toronto, and B, actually try to sign him because he's a really good player. Um, but then other than that, they've got DeRozan locked up through 2021. He has a... <laughs> $27 million player option in 2021, which I think he'll probably pick up. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Uh, and then, yeah, Valanciunas has a $17 million player option in 2020. Ouch. Again, yeah, and then Ibaka, Lowry signed through 2020. Uh, uh, Powell, this 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 is probably the worst move uh <laughs> Jerry has made uh, Powell is signed through 2022 when he has an 11 million dollar player option, which is just a lot for a dude who yeah. really was in and out of the rotation all year on a uh, team with a very deep bench. Like, yeah, <laughs> he's in and out of the rotation yeah, exactly. on a team that goes he, like he 11 break deep. In there. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, the, they really do not have a lot of uh, cap flexibility going forward. Um, but you know, at the same time, the, the team is is good enough to contend for the next couple of years. Um, I mean, do you think could you see them trying to swing like a sign and trade for one of the big free agents this off season, like Paul George or like Boogie Cousins or something like that? Paul George was the first name that came to mind for me. If they could do a sign and trade that includes Ibaka, an exciting young player, and some assets. Maybe you have to include a couple young players. Maybe you also sign Fred Van Vliet to get traded, and you also include Pirtle. I mean, maybe you even do Ibaka and Ananobi for Paul George. That might be worth it. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't give up Ananobi. Really? I would hang on to him for dear life. If I mean, well, the thing is, if you get Paul George on a, on a, a deal that's four years, um, and that matches up reasonably well with, with DeRozan, DeRozan and George are kind of on similar trajectories later in their in their prime, kind of just just at their peaks or moving. I mean, I think DeRozan is still peaking. I think George probably is there and kind of on his way down. Uh, I think Paul George, DeMar DeRozan, and Kyle Lowry could be a force next year, depending on how Lowry evolves into the later stages of his career. That could be a multi-year thing, but I don't know if Paul George wants to go to Toronto. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's pretty far from Hollywood. I I will say, though, um, you talk about Van Vliet being a restricted free agent. I wouldn't be surprised if he stays in Toronto because there's some loyalty there. You know, kind of like Lowry, the couple times he's become a free agent there, he's had the chance to take more money elsewhere, and he's signed deals that were not only, uh, like, like, good money, but good for Toronto, structured in a way that Toronto could build and maintain being one of the top teams in the NBA. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if on a on a smaller level with smaller you know figures, obviously Van Vliet does something similar, um, because Toronto is the team that really allowed him to become an NBA player. I think he likes that situation and would like to stay there and and become you know their sixth man of the future. Uh, 
I mean, I don't know how I'm so confident in this because I've never spoken to Fred Lindvliet or, or <laughs> I barely even know what his voice sounds like. I'm not, I haven't spent much time with his interviews, but uh, that's important to guys. Like, oh, this is yeah. like, this is the team that found me and turned, you know, like if TJ McConnell was a restricted free agent this summer, I'm sure that he would turn down twice as much money to stay with the Sixers because they're the team that gave him his shot and made him into an NBA player. Van Vliet, I don't think is quite as extreme of a situation as McConnell, but I think that logic could follow, and we could see Van Vliet signing a deal that works well for Toronto. I definitely think definitely think he'll stay just because I I think he'll match whatever offer sheet he gets unless it's something ridiculous. Yeah, but like at the same time, you know, I I'm I'm sure if like Fred has that sentiment too, but like if like the fucking Nets or something tender him like a ridiculous offer sheet i'm sure he'll still sign it just to you know even just so he gets that much money from toronto um because you know when you're a second round pick he's make he's making the minimum right now 1.3 million like you you jump it the first chance of a payday you can get no no he wasn't even a second round pick he went undrafted he's undrafted like, yeah when, when you're in the, when you're in that situation and he, and he's already 24 too so he can really only anticipate maybe one big contract in his in his career uh, maybe two, but uh, you've got to just maximize your earning potential while you while you can. So that'll that'll be an interesting s- scenario because that could really, you know, Toronto's already way over the cap, so, um, and that could really uh, complicate their finances even more if they have to pay him a lot to keep him. Yeah, I mean, we there's a lot of things that I want to talk about now with regards to them getting closer under the cap, but we spent a half hour talking about a series that is three zero. There's three more series we've got to get to that also uh, have been have been equally or less competitive, but uh, I do want to make sure we make time to cover all four series in the semifinals. So we'll move on for now. Um, we'll cross conferences, and we can go ahead and visit the uh, Warriors and Pelicans, who certainly there's been some, some intrigue, but at the end of the day, the Warriors have found a way to get it done, partially because... Steph Curry returned in game two, and as he's been known to do in the playoffs, he comes back and you expect some rust, and instead he just goes crazy immediately, Uh, which he did. He led the Warriors to a victory. Uh, A lot of folks I heard or read say uh, that was really a game that the Pelicans needed to win to make this series competitive. Uh, With that said, they still took one in in New Orleans, so it's it's 3-1 now. Golden State won the second game in New Orleans last night, I think. I don't even remember what yeah. game it was. Yeah, it wasn't uh, even close. Yeah, and but what did happen in that game, though, was Golden State debuted the lineup that I saw Tom Ziller in his, his newsletter today called the Hampton Five, the Hamptons Five, uh, the four guys who went to the Hamptons to convince Durant to join the Warriors and Durant. So Curry, Green, Thompson, Iguodala, and Durant which is the updated version of the death lineup, which usually doesn't start, which usually doesn't even get brushed off until the finals. But um, that's kind of a sign of respect that they needed that lineup to make sure they were going to be in a good spot against New Orleans. Obviously, this is the result we expected. Uh, What kind of takeaways do you have, though, from this series four games deep with Golden State heading towards a victory, but New Orleans putting up some impressive resistance? Yeah, I mean, this series has been pretty fun despite the... Uh, the fact that some of the games have been blowouts just because like the, the pace in this series is ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, they're averaging 100, 106 possessions per per game, um, which is faster than any team played in the regular season. Like You never see 
teams play faster in the playoffs than you do in the regular season. Um, but these are two teams that love to run. It was the uh, New Orleans was the fastest and, and Golden State the fifth fastest team in the league. And they've just been fucking going. Yeah. Um, which has been really entertaining to watch. Um, and I, I, as weird as it sounds, I think that it was the right choice for New Orleans to push the pace despite the fact that uh, Golden State is so good when you play fast, especially, bef- uh, you know, I don't think they're anticipating Curry being out or coming back as quickly as he did. Um, but, you know, when he was out, they had to push the pace. And e- even with him back, I think I think it's the right move because they just play so well in transition. Uh, you know, Davis runs the floor so well. And I think going to that Hamptons 5 lineup was kind of uh, – was kind of Golden State's only like counter to it because none of their centers can hang with, with when AD is playing that fast, and you've got to go to Draymond at center just to be able to keep up and to guard, and and you know and they they played the traditional centers off the floor, which was kind of what what we expected would happen, um, and and it just meant that Golden State's deadliest lineup has gotten even more run, so. There's really, there's really no way, no way for New Orleans to win here. But they've still been able to put up some credible resistance. And it's also pretty nuts that through four games, Rondo has 50 assists. Um, it's bananas. Play, playoff Rondo, who, uh, who was it? Was it Lee Jenkins? Somebody had not, no. It was Mark Stein had an article about how Rondo was like, "Don't call me playoff Rondo." But it's like, well, you only play this well in the playoffs, so yeah. maybe play this well yeah. in Game 40 and we'll stop calling you playoff Rondo. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> It's been cool, though. I'm glad he's back. I know we, we talked about this with them taking over Portland, but um, I hope he stays. I hope he becomes a part of that. I mean, he's not a core player like Davis is, but a part of that culture because I think if he sticks around New Orleans and, and sees the later part of his career there, that's a great reason for davis to want to stick around with uh coach rondo there throwing him awesome lobs um (laughs) davis has been playing out of his mind and i i agree and i'm glad that came up early for you them pushing the pace was a ballsy move but it was the right move for them that's how they play and we all know that's how golden state plays too and the conventional wisdom is you don't push the pace against them you try to slow the game down i mean we saw the Cavs have all kinds of success with that in the last several finals um but, but New Orleans is hung in there. Um, they know they can score with Golden State, and not necessarily by slinging threes the way that Golden State does. But, uh, I mean, with that said, they, they're pretty close to Golden State's amount of threes. New Orleans is 39 for 119. Uh, Golden State's 44 for 131. So actually pretty similar with regards to the three-point shooting. Um, so it's been competitive, and it's been fun to see. Uh, and, and, I mean, this was probably the series we... It's actually not the series we were expecting. This is the only series we predicted on our last episode. Uh, you said Golden State in seven. I said Golden State in six. So yeah, coming off coming well, off. Well, the, we thought Curry would be out for more than yeah. one game too. Good point. Good point. And and coming off that Portland series, uh, seemed like New Orleans really uh, had some firepower there. That while they do, uh, I mean Golden State, they have Steph Curry and Kevin Durant. Uh, one thing I'm yeah. surprised by is is Draymond seven of fifteen in this series from three. So. He, yeah. he leads the Warriors in three-point shooting percentage. But, uh, I mean, double those numbers, and then Curry's 12 for 28, so pretty close behind him. Um, yeah. 
Well, and, and that's the, – they have not been guarding him at all. Yeah. Like, literally at all. I mean, they, they leave him open every time. And, you know, if he's going to shoot almost 50% from three, like, you live with that. Um, especially because, you know, there are so many plays where he's not guarded and he doesn't take the open three. And, you know, it against any other team, that would totally muck up their offense. But against a team with just the talent of Golden State, it, it doesn't matter. But that's – you know, New Orleans is really doing everything right in that regard. You know, they've been putting, like, Rondo on Draymond. They've been putting AD on Draymond and just let him roam. Um, you know, and, and it hasn't mattered. But sometimes sometimes that's how it happens. Like, against the Warriors, you just have to kind of play the math and do the smart thing, knowing that it probably still won't work out. Um, only other thing I want to talk about in this series, I think Iguodala has been really good. Uh, it's kind of a pattern we've seen from him the past couple years is he looks slow in the regular season. He looks old. He looks like he's really declining. Uh, people are asking if he's washed up. You know, when we did our GM power rankings, I killed Bob Myers for the contract. Yep. He signed Iggy too, which I still think that's a really bad contract. But for the second straight year, Iguodala has looked horrible in the regular season and then really turned it up in the playoffs. And especially in this series, um, you know, only, you know, nine points, uh, five rebounds, three assists a game, but uh, 60, yeah, 61% true shooting, um, steal and block rates, really good. And I think defensively, he's been awesome. And he's just looked like the, the Iguodala of, of old, you know, that we've seen in, in previous playoffs. And that has been key as well, because. Uh, the Warriors certainly are, I don't think they're getting past the Rockets without Iguodala playing the way they need him to play. I completely agree. Definitely, he has to bring every possible, you know, ounce of, of energy and skill that he has into that series with the Rockets. And this feels like, you know, they got a lot of flack for how they seem to not really have their their foot on the gas pedal all regular season, even though they still secured the number two seed and had one of the best records in the league. But obviously they weren't playing up to their full potential. Um, He seems like he just knows what he has to do. And if that means taking it easy in the regular season, uh, I mean, this is the right situation to do that. Obviously, if if you ask NBA higher-ups... They want every player to play hard every night, but as a team, as a player, your end goal is to win a championship. Iguodala realizes that for Golden State to win a championship, what they need from him is to be ready, be fresh, and have every ounce that he has, as I mentioned a moment ago, in the playoffs, and looks like he did what he needed to do. And it seems like Steve Kerr was fine with that. So for all the flack they had to take in the regular season... Uh, at least in this example, they did exactly what they needed to do to have this player in the best position to succeed in the playoffs. Um, it It's not new for him to step up in the playoffs. I mean, he won the finals MVP, their first championship, and he's always <laughs> yeah. been somebody they can rely on. So uh, as much as getting Curry back and healthy is probably the biggest thing for them moving into that series with the Rockets, I would agree. Having Iguodala ready to rock, shaking off any rust that maybe he didn't quite get off in the regular season is number two behind Curry being close to 100% or at least effective and dangerous. Uh, and he is right now, as long as he keeps up how he's been the first few games. So um, 
Moving ahead to that Rocket series, we see, or not the series with the Rockets, but just, uh, guessing that Golden State will play Houston, barring the miraculous. Um, Golden State just had a lot of success against a team that plays really high tempo, and obviously Houston does that as well, albeit in a much different way and with just a bunch of pick and rolls. Um, what do you think Golden State can take from this series going into Houston uh, with the success they had against New Orleans with, with some similarities and just what they can expect from, from pace, even though obviously this team has a focal point of a big man, Houston's focal point is win guards. That aside, moving forward, what what is Golden Tate going to take from this series? Uh, I think the biggest thing for them is just, you know, getting, I think getting their death lineup or their, their Hamptons lineup going uh, like around before they're really going to need it. Uh, I think is going to be big because you're right. Houston has actually played uh, faster. Or I guess they they played about the same pace in the playoffs they had in the regular season. Um, they're playing faster against the Jazz actually than, than they did uh, in the regular season or in the playoffs uh, or in the first round, which is interesting because the Jazz aren't a team that likes to really run either. Um, Houston's going to be a different animal, man, because even though they they can run, they also you know, love to slow you down. You know, Harden loves to pick out a mismatch and take his time and then cook one-on-one. That's this going to be so interesting to see because Golden State loves to switch everything. They think that gives them an advantage with their like-sized defenders and their athleticism all over the court. And Houston loves to pick out switches and get mismatches for Harden to cook on. But I don't... At the same time, I don't know if that's the right strategy against Golden State because they have so many great one-on-one defenders. And, and maybe, uh, you, you know, guys like Draymond and Thompson and, and Durant who, you know, can really hold their own against Harden as much as anyone can. So I think that's going to be really interesting to see how that works. I think this is going to be a really, like, super small series. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of, like, Mba Mute at center, P.J. Tuckus. Tucker at center for Houston, and then, you know, Draymond or even KD at center on the other end. Um, I think it it's going to be hard for Clint Capella to have an impact when Golden State doesn't have a, another traditional big in the game. But also, you know, may, maybe that, that could be kind of an inefficiency for Houston to take advantage of, to, like, leave Capella in the game uh, when – Golden State goes to Draymond at center because Capella is still a good enough switch defender that I think he could survive out there and then just let him feast on on lobs and, and try to you know grab some offensive boards and really kill Golden State on the glass. Uh, so I think that's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. That's exactly where I wanted to go with it. Um, Capella, Capella, Capella. I just got last week's Sports Illustrated and read uh, Lee Jenkins had a great article going into Houston and their offense and D'Antoni and how he manages all the players when really it's just the Harden and Paul show. That article really spent a lot of time talking about Capella and you can't really talk about the Rockets anymore without talking about him because so much of this is a steady diet of Clint Capella pick and rolls. Uh, With Harden, with Paul, it all starts with Clint Capella setting a screen and then you take it from there, or setting a pick rather. So... I totally expect to see Capella still in the game with Draymond playing center. And I think that he'll be able to thrive on that, even though Draymond's such a good defensive player and the size isn't going to be a big deal. But Capella knows exactly what he needs to do. Um, he will cause some trouble 
because he's somebody you have to pay attention to now when he's rolling because like you said he can do some serious damage with lobs with passes that he just has to clean up right uh, under the basket um and with rebounding he does exactly what you want from a big man uh i mean that sports illustrated article compared him to amari stoudemire in the phoenix days and you know, I wouldn't go I know about that. quite that far <laughs> because he doesn't quite have that kind of scoring potential by himself. Uh, where it is apt is just the fact that he's doing what D'Antoni's asking of him, and that allows that team to thrive. Just like in Phoenix, Stoudemire did the same thing. So yeah, I, well, I am curious about the Mbamute lineups where maybe he takes the Capella spot and what that looks like. Obviously, defensively, that'll be a help to them. Mbamute can, can not neutralize Draymond, but at least slow him down a significant degree. But uh, I think offensively, Houston will need big minutes from Capella because he unlocks a lot of what they do. Uh, and as much as Harden and Paul having amazing a once-in-a-generation vision, offensively, finding open guys, uh, those guys get open because of the pick and roll with Capella and teams worrying about him rolling to the basket. Yeah. And I, I think it'll kind of, I think the flow of the game will kind of dictate how that goes. I think if he's rocking, they'll leave him in there against those lineups. But if D'Antoni feels like it's not working or if he feels like, you know, Capella can't hang uh, with that spacing, then, then he'll downsize. Um, but you're absolutely right. They should, they should make, they, they should exhaust that before they go away from it. You know, Capella's at, he has 13 blocks in four games against the Jazz. Um, so, you know, I'm sure, like, the Rockets are so smart that I'm sure they'll, they're will they already talking about how they can, you know, kind of, like, pre-switch, you know, when, you know, when they need to against the Warriors so they can keep Capella from having to go out on the perimeter, keep him uh, on someone who, whom he can help off of and just, you know, kind of get a bunch of blocks as a... Uh, as a help guy, hell, if he's if he's guarding Draymond, he can already do that because you know he won't have to get out there on him. And you know, uh, you know, Houston targets they're they're just they're more extreme than than almost any other team in the league with targeting specific weaknesses on their opponent. So I, I think they will ignore Draymond even more so than you know New Orleans has done in this series. I, I think they are really just not gonna give a shit at all when he has the ball, when he doesn't, just, just let him, let him shoot as much as he wants. Cause that is the path to victory for a gold state opponent. And if you make seven out of 15 threes again, like, you know, whatever that, that happens, but you live with that from Draymond. You have to, that is all that Houston has done. Yeah. Building this team, having this season leads up to making that decision saying, we will live with whatever Draymond Green does because if he has a bad game, we can maybe win this game. We can maybe win this series. And going into this season, nobody thought that was possible, that any team could be this competitive against Golden State as we are expecting Houston to be. So really, that's a, it's a triumph of Daryl Morey, of Mike D'Antoni, of the Houston roster, that they can get to this point where they're going to be able to make that decision and feel confident that if the ball goes their way enough times, they can win this game. And, and outside of, of that, uh, they, they match up fairly well. Um, if they play smart and if they stay playing their game, uh, it's going to be a hell of a series, and these games I would expect to be very tight. Um, I mean, we just talked about how Golden State's prepared for Houston by, by playing New Orleans and kind of dusting off some things and getting some guys ready. Moving over to that other matchup with Houston up 3-1 over Utah, 
Um, what do you see from from there, from how Houston's played against Utah, and uh, and presumably will finish this in Game Five at at home? Who knows? Either way, um, they came up against a Utah team that came off a really intense series and has carried that momentum. And uh, some of these final scores kind of look closer than the games were. Houston's kind of been in control, um, but I don't know. What 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 do you take? First, we'll talk about Houston, but obviously I want to get to Utah as well because even though they haven't gotten the results, they've still impressed me a little bit. But uh, how do you think Houston's controlled this series? Uh, well, I think really it's just been the brilliance of Harden and Chris Paul. Um, they have just they have both been outstanding in this series. Uh, and then Houston's defense has just been uh, really really good too. I mean, it's been they've been better than they were in the regular season. Um, you know, we, we just spent a lot of time seeing the praises of, of Clint Capella, and he has held his own against Rudy Gobert yeah. and then some. Um, and, and even more so than that, you know, Utah was just always – or Houston was always a bad matchup for Utah just because of the way they spread things out. And, you know, they, they, they're probably Gobert's worst nightmare. Um, and even going back to the regular season uh, – you know they were they were just able to kind of have their way with with Utah's defense, uh, even with Gobert out there, just because they force him to make the impossible choice. Um, if he doesn't get out of the paint and get up on those guys, then uh, you know they're just going to make it rain from downtown. But then if he hangs back, uh, Utah or Houston is going to get the lobs they want. They're going to get to the rim, and you know as great as. Uh, you know, as great as Gobert is at defending without fouling, um, Harden has been able to get to the line a ton in this series. <laughs> he is 36 of 39 from the free throw line in this series. You know, that's he's just been living there. Um, so I think Utah was pretty much DOA when they got into the series, which it, it sucks to, to say that. It sounds oversimplistic, but to me that's really how it's been. Yeah, um, I mean, it was really cool to see them win game two. Uh, for a second there, it was like, okay, is this series going going deep? But game three, Houston just, just took care of business. Um, and once that happened, I mean, the series was definitely over. Um, as you mentioned, to a certain degree, this, this series, we all knew where it was going before it even started. Um, I've been I've, I've been impressed, though, with, with how Utah has just, just played in the playoffs how they get things done. As I've mentioned before, it's crazy to me how much Donovan Mitchell is already the focal point and up to the task of being the focal point of an NBA offense. But also, it's really cool, uh, old Jingle Bell Joe. Joe Ingles just plays... Jingling Joe. Yeah. Just plays some... uh, He plays the Jingle Bell Rock, dude. I don't know what's going on with that guy. I can't wait to watch more Joe Joe Ingles next year. I like him. He's playing heavy minutes for Utah right now, and, and... they trust yeah. him with a lot, and even though he looks like your seventh grade social studies teacher, he he does what they need of him. Uh, yep, Alec Burks getting some run too, and actually playing finally. really well has been awesome to see. Um, you know, one thing we haven't mentioned yet is Ricky Rubio hasn't played in this series. Excellent which, point. Uh, I don't think he would have made a difference. Uh, well. Well, I think he would have made a small difference. Not he wouldn't have uh, been the difference between winning and losing, but. It sucks, you know, for as limited as he is as a scorer, 
He's one of the best passers in the league, and he's one of the best defenders at his position in the league. And, you know, by him being out, he just necessitates, you know, it, it's not so much like his backups being incapable, but it's that pushes everyone else up in the rotation a little bit more. Like, Alec Burks has been great, but there's a reason he didn't play through most of the regular season or uh, most of the first round. Uh, ditto for, like, Royce O'Neal. He's not really – he shouldn't be starting in a playoff series as good as he's been, but he is. So, that hurt. Yeah, and, I mean, basically Rubio's minutes have gone to Burks and Exum as well as, like, they've done some different lineups. And, as you mentioned, O'Neal starts – uh, and then Favors and Crowder have each started. Favors three games, Crowder one. So uh, Burks, O'Neal, and Exo, I'm glad have all gotten minutes and, and have all played reasonably well and are guys I look forward to watching moving forward. Uh, especially Royce O'Neal, I really have a soft spot for. But Rubio, I mean, they don't win that Oklahoma City series without him. He got in Russell Westbrook's head. Uh, he was playing great basketball, perhaps the best basketball of his NBA career. And yeah, it would have been cool to see him hopefully continue that streak had he remained healthy. And that would have been one more thing for Houston to worry about defensively. And he's become a very capable defender and could have caused some problems for them on the offensive end as well. So it's a shame, but there is no NBA playoffs without injuries affecting things. It's the nature of the game, and it it's just something that teams have to survive. Um Speaking of that, we should probably hop over to the last series because that one has been dictated in a large degree by by injuries that happened before the series with, with the Celtics playing without guys who are very good and the Sixers playing with Embiid wearing a weird Batman mask. But before we hop in there, uh, wrapping up Houston, Utah, any any last thoughts or, or any of Houston, Utah, and Golden State, New Orleans, which series would you say has a better chance of going to a game six? I would say neither. <laughs> but okay. if, if you're All making right. me pick, but if you're making me pick one, uh, I would go with um, uh, Golden State, New Orleans. I, I think New Orleans has just been more competitive. I think. Houston is just such a bad matchup for Utah that I don't see them getting another one. See, I was going to say Houston-Utah because I could see Chris Paul getting the yips because he's so close to getting to the conference finals. Oh, ha- yeah. Having just like yeah. a, a terrible two-point game and Donovan or, Mitchell just exploding one last time. But uh, well, Did you see what he said to Kristen Ludlow after the game last night? No. She was interviewing. She asked him about being one win away from his first conference finals. And he was like, I've been up, he's like, I've been up 3-1 in the second round before, and that shit didn't go so well. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, it's sad, but that's awesome. And I mean, good for him <laughs> for just saying it like it is. Oh, God. Those Clippers teams, dude. What a what a strange chapter in NBA history. Yeah, for real. <sighs> okay. But, yeah, man, you're Celtics, like... I don't know how they're doing it. I, I love how people are talking about, oh, the Sixers are so young. They're not ready. They're whatever. The, the Celtics aren't really that much older, nor are they, you know, like they're just as inexperienced. And yet they're, they've just been running train in this series. It's, it's well, not really running train. I mean, that a couple of these games have been really close, but it's been remarkable what they've been able to pull off. Outside of, of, 
game one, which they ran away with at the end. Uh, game two and game three came down to, uh, I mean, game three went to overtime. These have been close. Um, it came down to a few bounces, especially game three. Literally, uh, you know, Bellinelli's two inches back further when he hits that shot, and Philadelphia wins. I mean, yeah, they dropped the confetti for a reason, um, which was dumb and funny. But Boston, uh, it's come down to just having a little more, I hate to use the word, but but grit, I guess. Um, Stevens, I think, feels a little more comfortable in these scenarios than Brett Brown, while Brett Brown has been losing 60 games the last few seasons. Brad Stevens has been taking his team to the Eastern Conference Finals or to Game 7s in playoff series. So he's more used to coaching in these moments. These players are more used to being in these moments. I mean, Al Horford's been to the Conference Finals. This will be his his third trip, I believe, one with Atlanta and then once with Boston last year. Yeah. And then Rozier, Brown, and Smart were both on the team that went to the Conference Finals last year. Aaron Baines has played in the Finals before. So this roster has guys who have logged playoff minutes. It's also just a bunch of guys who have really embodied the next man up cliche mentality that teams take on when they take a lot of significant injuries. But really, uh, seeing Terry Rozier become Scary Terry, um, seeing Tatum not shy away from the increased responsibility and from the wear that many rookies break down due to going into his 100th game of this season, you know, or getting near that. Uh, I think it's been... The young guys not missing a beat and stepping up for Boston, whereas, you know, Simmons had that dud. Um, Simmons and Embiid made some foolish plays at the end of Game 3. That's been the difference. As much as these teams more or less have played each other to a draw, in those tight moments, it's been the difference that Boston has a slightly different mentality and didn't make stupid passes. I don't know. Yeah. Why? How do you think we got here? It is pretty nuts that it's three nothing. Yeah. Well, and it, it's not like the Sixers don't have guys with experience. You know, Redick and Bellinelli have both been to the finals before, yeah. but uh, they just haven't been. You know, they're not really a, like a on court. Well, I don't want to say they're not. They're not a leader. They're they're not a on court focal point the way a guy like Al Horford is. Um, part and you know part of it too is Ilyasova. Uh, Covington, Bellinelli, Sarage uh, are all shooting un- less under thirty-one percent from three, and that's those guys need to make their shot. And if all four of them go cold at once, that's just a recipe for disaster from Philly. And the other thing is, Ben Simmons has had a really bad series. Yeah. Um, you know, it, he was really able to. This is the first series where I think his lack of shooting has really become a problem. Um, it, it wasn't against Miami because, uh, A, I don't think Miami, even though they had a lot of uh, really good defenders, a lot of kind of like-sized and athletic guys, um, they were not able to defend Ben Simmons the way Boston has been able to do it. Uh, I thought putting like Horford on Simmons was a really smart move for Brad Stevens, and they've been doing that for you know stretches. Um, he just has not been himself. And speaking of Horford, I think he's been the best player in this series. I mean, he has been unbelievable. Um, you know, Embiid has been able to put up some good stats, but I think 
Uh, on the whole, Horford's done pretty well when he's been matched up on him. And offensively, he has looked – he has really taken advantage of Embiid to a degree that I didn't think was possible. He looked a lot faster. He looked more decisive, um, especially like down the stretch of – I think it was game two where yeah. Horford was just blowing by him to get the, the clinching buckets. Yeah. Uh, he has been he has been so good. I mean that that moment, especially when Horford gets the ball at the top of the key and literally just took Embiid to the hole, uh, is kind of a microcosm of the, of the whole series. It hasn't been that visually evident, but Horford has been getting to the spots he wants to get to, and more often than not, he's been he's been making the shots that he always takes, um, and it's not pretty. You know, he backs guys down. He has weird little stutter steps. Uh, he's kind of got an old man's game, as you would think, when most big men in the modern NBA are kind of smooth and fluid, like Embiid, like Davis. Um, it doesn't matter for Horford. He he is doing exactly uh, what prime, you know, peak Al Horford does, which is just, just gets results. Doesn't care yeah. about the stat sheet. If his team wins, if he played the game he needed to play, then that's fine. And, I mean, the stat sheet's actually been looking pretty good for him for once. Uh, it's nice to finally quiet some people who spend a lot – too much time talking about whether Horford's contract was worth it or whatever. Obviously it was. Anybody who yes. watched that guy play, obviously yes. he's worth every single penny that he's been paid. Um, but it is yeah. wild to see him outmatch Joel Embiid when it felt like, for all intents and purposes, Al Horford was going to be hanging on for dear life against Embiid. Not only Horford, yeah. but I really want to mention Aaron Baines as well because sure, Baines got posterized a couple times. Uh, he does not care. Uh, SB Nation yeah. renamed that, like, they had the little graveyard for everybody who got posterized. They renamed it, like, the Aaron Baines graveyard or whatever. He does not care. He can get posterized 10 times in a game, but if the 11th time he makes a block, it's worth it for him. Uh, that is so awesome. And that's part of the reason I think the Celtics are up 3 nothing because that mentality spreads beyond Baines. They were in Philadelphia with a really hostile environment with that crowd getting really amped up every time Philadelphia went on a run or had an impressive play. Uh, doesn't matter. The Celtics are very businesslike in that they're just going to play their game. They're going to make the smart play. They're going to run whatever ATO Brad Stevens runs up. And man, that one word they got it to Horford right under the rim was crazy. There's so much action going on, and it's like, nope, we're just going right down to Horford on Covington. Um, yeah. Little moments like that are, are Stevens at his finest, keeping his team uh, even keeled, even when a lifetime backup's got the ball in his hands for most of the game and Rozier and a 19-year-old is leading your team in, in points per game. Uh, it's unexpected with how this roster was supposed to match up against Philadelphia, but it's cool, and it's also exciting looking ahead to Cleveland because if they can exploit this Philadelphia team that's got a lot more talent across the roster... I look forward to seeing how they'll exploit mismatches against Cleveland, where after LeBron, really, there's a lot for Boston there to use to their advantage. Yeah, this this series is becoming there, that that potential series has, is becoming a lot more intriguing um, with how the Cavs have turned it up, but then also how amazing, how great defensively Boston has looked in this series, um, and how how Tatum has stepped up his game too after really not playing that well in the first round. Um, yeah, dude, it's, it's crazy. It, what's, what's been impressive to me, too, is uh, how efficient Tatum and, and Horford have been. Tatum's at 64% true shooting. Horford is at 68% when the three ball hasn't been falling for either of them. No. Uh, Tatum is 4 of 13, and, and Horford is 2 of 7, but they have been so efficient. They have been getting 
Horford, he's been blowing past Embiid like like no big man has been able to do the past few years. And Tatum, uh, his mid-ranger has just been falling like it's it's been money. And that's, you know, that is a bad shot. Like that, that pull-up two is theoretically, you know, not a good shot. But Jason Tatum might just be one of those guys who can make that shot, you know, regardless of the coverage or the, or the contest. I mean, he's certainly already looked like, you know, that type of elite bucket getter at times this season. And he might, right now, he might be proving that that's just what he is, that you, if his three ball isn't falling, if you if you take that away from him or if he just goes cold, it doesn't matter. It goes back to me, the comparison, not from a talent way, but for Boston, is uh, Evan Turner, when he was on the Celtics, they really were cool with letting him play his game, and that meant a lot of mid-range and things like that. So to see Tatum all of a sudden recapture that mid-range where for much of the season it's been more him taking threes and him playing more NBA-style basketball, uh, higher higher yield shots, so to speak, uh, I'm not surprised at all that he's unleashed that and Brad Stevens has allowed it to happen because it's always been at the end of the day with guys on this iteration of the Celtics uh, maximizing their strengths and minimizing what they don't do that well. And so here we, are, here we are with Tatum. Teams are a little more aware of chasing him off the three-point line and giving him more uh, to deal with defensively. And if he needs to say, fine, I'm going to take some mid-range shots that I've been canning my whole life, then I don't think you're going to take have issue with that from Brad Stevens. I think he's probably going to applaud it. So one other thing I'll note is uh, Jalen Brown fighting back from the hamstring injury he sustained in Game 7 of the last series. Uh, Even as he's played Game 2 and Game 3, there have been moments in both games where he will go up for a dunk or something and then come back down limping. And uh, It's crazy to see him continue to fight through it. He gets treatment every time he goes to the sidelines. I always wonder whether that's his last possession or last minutes of the game, but he plays through it and he's given them effective minutes. And I mean shooting 5 of 11 from 3. Yeah. It's going to be key for him to keep getting that hamstring under control because they will need him in a big way against Cleveland. Last year, he played some minutes against LeBron. I don't think any one person is going to be the LeBron stopper, but I think he will be among the rotation that will have to defend LeBron effectively for Boston to have a chance in the next series. Yeah, that worries me, man. I'm glad you brought that up because I don't think think Jalen Brown should be playing right now. I, I definitely don't think he should play game four. I think yeah. they should sit him and just think, like, we've got three, like, four shots to win this game, yeah. you know. Um, not not only, you know, thinking for the Cavs series and a potential finals, but they they should not even be thinking about this year. You know, there's a reason I think they're prudent in shutting down Kyrie Irving. Yeah. And this it's not about this year for the Celtics. It's about next year. It's about the next five to seven years. And they should not do anything this series or this playoffs that would uh, jeopardize Jalen Brown's future health or, you know, even you don't want to make this like either a more catastrophic injury or just something that like nags him throughout his career. And I think they're really running the risk of that. Um, You know, he had a quote, I think after game two, where he said the doctors didn't want him to play, but he played anyway. It's like, well, dude, listen to your fucking doctors. Don't play on a bad hamstring that is clearly visibly bothering you, you know, just take the time, get ready. I, I really think they should shut him down um, because he's too important to their, he's too important to them through the rest of these playoffs and to their future to, have, to risk anything going wrong. Um, 
And yeah, just in terms of, yeah, they are going to probably need him to take take on LeBron for a little bit. I think that'll probably fall more on uh, Marcus Morris, uh, maybe uh, Marcus Smart and uh, Shemi Ojale. I think should I think Shemi should definitely get a chance. Just he's an offensive zero, but that dude is so freaking cut. Like you just gotta, you know, you've got to give him a chance. Yeah, but um... that's that's gonna be an issue. No, I I think that the the move, I I predict we'll see Ojale start game four. Uh, he might just get all of Jalen Brown's minutes, or they might just run some different lineups with, uh, you know, maybe Horford and Baines on the floor, or, or a little bigger with without Brown playing the three. Um, definitely Ojale, who's only gotten twenty seven minutes in this series, will get more minutes in the Cavs series. Um, and thing is, offensively, sure he doesn't do what Jalen Brown does, but. He can space the floor. He hits threes at a rate consistent enough that teams won't have be able to completely ignore him. So he will be a significant factor in that Cavs series, just like he became very significant at the end of that Buck series when, I mean, Brad said he was the key for them winning that Game 7, and uh, that's not too far. I mean, maybe that's a little bit of hyperbole to make a bench guy feel good, but that's not too far from the truth. He really gave them some vital minutes and I mean, guarded Giannis, which is no easy task. So, uh yeah, I mean, I, I'll admit, as a Boston fan, this is incredibly exciting and fun. But also, just taking a step back, and it, the way the NBA goes, when usually at the end of the day, the more talented team just wins, it's cool to see the Celtics, with less raw talent, find a way with some guys stepping up in a big way, and, and with a team that really just doesn't care what the odds are or who's on the other side of the floor, they're just going to give it everything that they have. So, uh out of this series or the Cleveland series, which one do you think is more likely to go to a game five? I think this series, I think, I think just again, because of the raw talent in Philly, even though I think we and everyone else is kind of underselling Boston from a talent perspective, like Horford is great. He's always been great. Uh, Tatum has stepped it up so much and, and Rozier and, and the support guys have been so good. But yeah, I think, I think Philly Definitely has a chance, especially with Game Four being at home. Um, Toronto has no chance. Like they, they haven't won a game in Cleveland. Uh, like since Toronto was, uh, you know, a British territory. I guess it's still part of the Commonwealth. <laughs> but, but it's just they're 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 so shook. And I could see Cleveland winning Game Four by thirty yeah. plus. Like it's it's just not going to go well. Yeah. Same. Um, if if no series extends past the next game, the game fours and fives respectively, this round could be over as soon as Tuesday. Today's Monday, so tomorrow. Yeah, uh, I, I well, both of these games could end tonight, or both these series could end tonight, and I hope they do. Uh, when you, I never like seeing a uh, team down three three nothing win game four because you know it's just gonna they're just gonna lose game five. It's you know, unless sick. unless. Yeah. Unless Toronto, like this is the way, unless this is the way Toronto gets the, you know, exercises their demons is by being the first team in NBA history to come back from a three nothing deficit, and they do it against LeBron James, and they do it by winning, uh, you know, three games in Cleveland, which they would have to do. Like it's that that would be a crazy story, but I don't want that to happen because I don't want to see this series. Just just end these series tonight. Let's let us move on. You know, thanks for trying Raptors, but. It didn't work out. Yeah. It's a lot of unnecessary time 
it's a lot of unnecessary travel, not just for the teams, but for some journalists who might want to see their families for a couple of days before the conference finals. So yeah, let's stick a fork in it. Uh, yeah, and 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 you know those journalists will be bitching like crazy if this thing goes five. So. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, they're all yeah, they're all already planning their their summer getaways for the two days <laughs> before free agency starts. So we'll uh, we'll leave it there. I assume the next time we're back, we will be discussing some conference finals with these lineups set in stone or these matchups set in stone uh they've already got out the proverbial chisel and hammer to set them in stone but assuming that work will be done by the end of this week or the beginning of next week uh tommy any last words before we sign off just uh wakanda forever even though i don't i don't know if that even holds anymore after what happened in infinity war yep and we we spoil things a little bit at the front end which i'll leave a tag on the episode description but we won't spoil anymore on the back end because i don't want to piss off any of our five listeners uh, as always please subscribe and rate if I, I don't know if anybody's ever rated us on apple Podcasts, but give it a shot that'd be cool if they even sent us an email about it um i don't know if they would i don't know how that would work but we'll see uh thanks to anchor yeah, I'll find out yeah we'll see i'll, I'll check after this Thanks to my buddies in the Woolly Mammoths for giving us some some theme music. And uh, thanks to the NBA for being cool. Uh, For Tommy Wood, I'm Sam Ruth here, and we will see you all next week.